Antibiotic resistance is something that affects every veterinary and human healthcare professional. This week, we're going to meet a veterinarian who's doing some very exciting research at Colorado State University on the impact that antibiotic resistance may be having on small and large animal veterinarians. This week on The Veterinary Viewfinder. Welcome back to The Veterinary Viewfinder, the podcast that tackles the toughest topics in veterinary medicine. And a tough topic to me and to the survival of our species is antibiotic resistance. I mean, we hear about it in the news. We hear about new strains of bacteria. We've got a pandemic going on. And this week, we are so excited to bring you a veterinary expert in this area who's doing some research that I think you want to help us all with. But before we get into that discussion, as always, I am one of your co-hosts, Dr. Ernie Ward. And I'm registered veterinary technician, Becky Mother. And Becky, this week, we are really lucky to have a guy that I met a few years back when he was just beginning his PhD in this particular specialty. Uh, and he really has taken it upon himself to say, hey, what's the role, the contribution of small animal veterinarians and veterinary technicians by extension in antibiotic resistance? And what can we do to be better stewards of antibiotics? And so this week, we're going to have a conversation with Dr. Dan Taylor, who's currently a, a veterinarian who's doing a PhD program at Colorado State University. And I, I just, this is a really important topic. And so viewfinders, this is one of those that I want you to kind of stash away, share with your colleagues, because there's a lot of important information. So Dan, thank you so much for joining us. Yeah, I really appreciate the opportunity to talk with, with you and Becky today. This is a thrill. I'm a, a regular listener, and uh, you know, this is a great way to start the day, having a, a conversation with uh, two people that come through my speaker on almost a weekly basis. Well, that's fantastic. Aww. Well, that means a lot to us. Well, Dan, you and I first became acquainted serendipitously uh, about three years ago uh, down at North American Veterinary Conference. I'm sorry, the VMX Conference, or whatever the heck they're going to call it moving forward. I don't know. But uh, you had a small booth way back yonder in the back, and it was about antibiotic resistance. I was walking by. I happened to have my camera with me, and I said, holy cannoli, Dr. Dan, let's talk about antibiotic resistance. And so maybe maybe share with the viewfinders like how you got to that table at VMX a few years back and, and what you've been doing since then. Yeah, absolutely. I, you've got a great memory. We were back in the, the corner of the nonprofit booths back at the yeah. BMX Expo Hall. And um, at the time, we were, uh, we were doing a study, a survey study, on how veterinarians here in the U.S. prescribe antimicrobial drugs. And uh, yeah, we, you and I had a, a great chat back in, uh, back in the day. And uh, with your help of that video, we, we gathered almost 2,400 responses from veterinarians across the country. So we've got uh, a quite um, a data set there that helps us describe how veterinarians use these drugs in everyday practice with, with dogs and cats. And this is really important, Dan, because I think too often, and you and I have discussed this a couple of times since then, we view this whole antibiotic resistance mess as a problem that somebody else's, right? It's not me. I'm prescribing antibiotics for little snotty-nosed cats or whatever, right? <laughs> I mean, I'm not the bad guy here. But you were very early in the days, you know, to support, hey, wait, we're all in this together. Absolutely. 
you know, I think that's a really good point. And that's something we've, we've found in some of our previous research is that it's, it's not us. It's not the companion animal veterinarians. Maybe it's the production animal veterinarians. Maybe it's the human, um, the human medicine realm. Perhaps some veterinarians think that antimicrobial resistance is, is not an issue. So it's a very diverse type of, of thought process amongst veterinarians. And uh, what I think our research has has done is, is maybe shed a little bit of light on the current thinking that we as veterinarians have in regards to antimicrobials. Yeah. And I think one of the things too, that connected Dan and I early on, Becky, uh, back way back in 2015, 2016, I had made a video uh, on my Dr. Ernie Ward YouTube channel about antimicrobial resistance. And I think I called it 10,000 or 10 million deaths and snotty nosed kittens or something like that. But I was trying at that point to make a visual or, or video sort of storytelling around why you prescribing or excessively prescribing antibiotics in small animal practice might just wind up leading to these 10 million deaths due to antibiotic resistance. So I think Dan and I had a connection there. But Dan, so, so but before we got get into th- that part, you know, you were a veterinarian first. So maybe tell the viewfinders a little bit about how you, you know, what you did in veterinary practice and what led you to, to pursue a PhD. You know, the great thing about our profession is just the variety that a veterinarian can, can choose in terms of their career paths. And um, you know, there are a lot of great stories out there. And uh, we've certainly heard those on, on your show uh, being highlighted. Uh, so mine is just another story amongst a, a lot of stories uh, for veterinarians. Um, but I graduated from Iowa State University in 2010 and went straight into a small animal practice in north central Illinois for a few years. Um, after that, I had the opportunity to go into the Food Safety Inspection Service, uh, FSIS, right. for uh, approximately a year doing food inspection in in meat processing plants. Uh, from there, life took me out to Colorado, uh, out here in Denver, uh, where I currently live, and uh, practiced for uh, about another four or five years before being being really blessed with the opportunity to pursue a PhD in epidemiology at the, the Colorado School of Public Health, which is a conglomeration of, of CU Denver, um, Colorado State up in Fort Collins, and the University of Northern Colorado in, in Greeley. Um, during that time of, of working on a PhD, I uh, also had the, the opportunity to continue to practice as a relief veterinarian. So a lot of interwinding roads to get to this point, uh, but I just actually defended my dissertation back in November and graduated just last December with that PhD. Uh, so we're still hanging on doing some research from those PhD days, uh, but it's been a, a great path so far and, and really looking forward to the future opportunities uh, within the profession. Well, Dan, how did how did COVID impact the last year or so of your PhD program? I mean, that's often the time when you're doing the most with your, you know, with your professor and, and your team and so forth. How did that work out? Yeah, great question. Yes, in the research world, we're maybe a little bit more insulated than, say, a, a full-time practicing veterinarian, but we still did have our, our challenges. I think a good example is we were just wrapping up a survey project of pet owners to assess their perceptions and attitudes of antibiotics and use in, in their pets. And when COVID came along, uh, we were we were administering that survey in in hospitals out here in Colorado. Well, you can imagine that that changed pretty quickly. Right. <laughs> so right. Our, our data collection process definitely dropped off there with with the pet owners. Um, 
not really unique to my program, but something that a lot of graduate students are facing right now. Uh, they don't get that one-on-one in-person mentorship right. with committee, and you know, defending a dissertation uh, over Zoom is definitely a a new paradigm. Uh, <laughs> in the graduate world. So that was a little bit interesting too. But, uh, you know, props to all the mentors at the, the Colorado School of Public Health and, and CSU in their support for, for grad students, especially old grad students like me who come back after <laughs> Well, Dan, congratulations again on successfully defending your, your thesis, uh, your dissertation rather. Uh, and I will say, uh, yes, I have heard so many uh, friends and colleagues who were defending during this time. And, and like you said, it was a bizarre, bizarre experience to do this via video conference, you know, so uh, hats off to you. Uh, you really, yeah, it, you've got stories to tell the grandkids. Okay, so let's let's get back into this. What drew you to this topic of antibiotic resistance? I mean, obviously, you're working with in the human field, you're working in the veterinary field, the public health and safety field, you know, I mean, and you've done a lot prior, but what led you to this particular topic? That's a great question. There, there's a lot of, of antimicrobial use, and when I say antimicrobial, you know, I, I mean antibiotic too, as well. Mm-hmm. But you know, being a practicing veterinarian for for almost a decade, I realized that we are are using antimicrobial drugs uh, quite a bit. And are we using those medications appropriately every time we prescribe them? Those were some questions that really drew me to the topic, along with the connection to human health. It's not just animals that are affected by resistant infections. People, too, can struggle with with those types of of medical issues. Uh, So antimicrobial resistance is really that quintessential one health issue. And I think as veterinarians, we are naturally driven to to want to explore that interface between animals and humans. Wow, I love this. And it couldn't be more timely. Uh, Dan, you probably saw last week, uh, the CDC published some research that was done at Johns Hopkins in our neck of the woods, where Becky and I live in rural eastern North Carolina. And they talked about these new strains of multi-drug resistant staph aureus that were being passed from humans to the pig and then developing some resistance and then being passed back to the human. I mean, this is some scary stuff. Absolutely. And and that was an interesting study that that looked at how pigs can potentially um, propagate the staph aureus through urinary tract infections in in humans. Um, And I I think that research is is laudable for sure. Uh, And I think it really highlights one of the the challenges, too, with this type of research in that it's really tricky to to nail down those causal relationships. Right. Um, you know, where does that staph aureus come from? Does it does it originate in pigs and go to people? Does it go from people to hogs back to people? You know, right. where is the impetus for the resistance? Um, and, and, and at the same time, while highlighting that challenge, it also highlights the um, the importance of continuing to study that that challenge. Is there anything in particular? I mean, we obviously know that, you know, the porcine model is very similar to the human model. And is that why this is happening? Or is it specific to over microbial use, which I think is what we're all kind of worried about? Like, are they using a lot of antimicrobials in pigs and it's resulting in this? Um, Or is it maybe in people that's stemming from it? What do you think is 
obviously speculation, but what would you say? Alex, I'll take all of the above. <laughs> I know. That is a really great question. And I think the response of taking all of the uh, answers above is also an appropriate response. <laughs> yeah. um, you know, I will say that the uh, livestock sector, production livestock sector here in the United States has done a lot of good things over the last decade or so in conjunction with the, the government and the FDA and the USDA in curbing a lot of, of, of not inappropriate use, but maybe excessive use of, of antimicrobials. Good example is in production species like cows and, and pigs and chickens. Um, antimicrobial drugs are no longer labeled for that growth promotion type of purpose. Right. Um, you know, back in the day, uh, as, as production animals were starting to become more industrialized, um, veterinarians and producers alike realized that small little doses of growth promoting antibiotics could increase feed efficiency and, and growth and therefore uh, make a more efficient um, livestock product. But um, as the United States followed suit, in the 2015-2016 timeframe from, from Europe, uh, we no longer use those, those drugs. But to, to your question, Becky, I think it's a, a, it's a tricky subject. And I think that there is a degree of finger pointing amongst professionals, not only within veterinary medicine, but just, just the medical profession in, in general. And I think what we, we forget sometimes is that we, we don't have a lot of really great evidence that points to uh, the origin of these these bugs and how they ultimately transmit what's the role of the environment as well and I think that's something that that we realize um, as we continue looking at these these um, these questions and Dan that was something that was highlighted in that CDC report if I remember correctly they were talking about that they had much more open access to these factory farms in Europe you know and they could go in and collect freely whereas in the US it was a much more constrained uh, access and so you know I think that you're you're right on, on one hand but on the other hand we've got to loosen or allow some type of testing to be done because you know Honestly, we don't know the scope of the problem in the U.S. to a large extent. That's absolutely right. And I think that that really is seen um, in the research we've done in the past is, is we're, we're answering some questions that are are pretty basic in terms of, of attitudes and perceptions of, of not only veterinarians, but but uh, pet owners and, and other veterinary professionals as well uh, about how we even think of these drugs. Um, but you're, you're absolutely right. I think uh, we'll continue to come together, both industry and government and veterinarians to, to answer these issues. Okay, so that leads us to the next most obvious question, and that is, what about small animal vets? So let's kind of table that whole food animal factory farming discussion. You know, I think, Becky, you're right. It's just a massive undertaking and overwhelming question to answer today. But what about, you know, what Becky and I do, what you used to do, working or, you know, working in small animal clinics? What are some of the attitudes, opinions, and behaviors that you've been finding in your research? Yeah, I, I love that. I love that transition, Dr. Ward, because um, I think all too often we start to look at the production animal setting and, and stop there. So right. to have that transition to small animal medicine is really important, and I, and I appreciate that sentiment of, of including the companion animal world, too. Um, but I, I think 
will agree, the three of us, that uh, at least subjectively in our practice experience, we know that the antimicrobial drugs are maybe overprescribed for some conditions that don't necessarily require them. Um, and I'll be the first one to admit I have been in the exam room with a young dog who is having a dry cough, uh, who obviously has a, a, a viral upper respiratory infection. And I'll be the first one to admit I have definitely prescribed antibiotics for that case, knowing that antibiotics don't make any difference in that in that case. And you know, my that personal experience and, and experience of my close colleagues who I've had the pleasure of, of working with has really been shown objectively in especially our, our veterinary survey of attitudes and perceptions surrounding antibiotic use in practice. Um, I think a good example is in our, our veterinary professional survey, we presented five different hypothetical clinical scenarios of cases that, that were routinely seen among, amongst veterinarians. So, uh, for example, that young male cat who is having right. uh, palachiuria, dysuria, hematuria, um, you know, skin issues in dogs, acute diarrhea in a non-systemically ill dog. Um, and amongst those five clinical scenarios, we found that there is some, some convincing evidence that we are overusing these, these antibiotics for conditions that don't necessarily uh, require them. Right. Um, so that is concerning. And I think if you look at the methodology of that survey, what's even more concerning is these surveys were confidential, they were anonymous, and they describe scenarios that veterinarians see almost on a daily basis in practice. So veterinarians were, were not at all exposed in these opinions. They were giving us their true opinion of how they use these drugs. Um, so I, I think uh, those are some things that we noted, especially from, from that survey. I think a good example is the the, the cat I mentioned, that young, healthy cat with fluted signs, of the surveyed veterinarians, of the 2,400 surveyed veterinarians, almost half prescribed an antimicrobial drug. Yep. Um, that's, that's a lot because those scenarios were designed to illustrate a topic or a clinical presentation that did not require antimicrobial drugs. And, and you know, Dan, I want to get Becky's uh, opinion on this as well. So this is exactly what I was talking about in that video back in 2015, 2016. I was trying to give them communication tactics to use with that client who's literally demanding that the cat with the runny eyes receive an antibiotic because we've been so conditioned in our society to expect an antibiotic. I mean, it starts in pediatric medicine, I would argue. But Becky, you know, on the other side of this equation, veterinary technicians are also being, you know, sort of hitting, the, being hit with demands by pet parents. They're kind of like saying, you know, aren't you going to give me an antibiotic today, right? Well, kind of as always, we are in between. So right. we may have veterinarians who are prescribing antibiotics and we're feeling them thinking, hey, hey, it's not going to work. Um, but we have to follow, you know, what our right. veterinarians do. Or like you said, we have clients who are, are kind of demanding and we have to reiterate. I think the bigger problem is when antimicrobials are getting prescribed and then clients just want them refilled. Like, 
Oh, right. he's got that same ear infection he had last year. Or, oh, it's right. that same upper respiratory thing last year. Just Will you just refill it? Why do I have to bring them back in? I think that's where we run into a little bit more of a problem is like the comfort level with just throwing it at them now. But what I also will say is I think, again, we have a more educated population than we ever have. And I think more than we're getting demands, we're getting like, are these needed? Because they're aware of um, you know, the effects of antimicrobials, because again, I think our, our clients are doing their research. So I think either way we're getting questioned. <laughs> well, Dan, what does your research say from the pet parent perspective? Like Becky's saying, are, are you seeing this shift towards, no, I don't want these antibiotics, you know, just skip them this time. I'm concerned about whatever. Are, are we still seeing that sort of classic, hey, aren't you going to give my cat some medication? That's a really great question. I, and I, I love where this conversation is going because I think we'll, we'll evolve and to see that this is a, uh, a multi-stakeholder issue. You know, the antibiotic yeah. prescription process is not just the veterinarian. Um, it includes pet parents as well. And, uh, you know, some, some results that we're working on publishing right now currently looked at those, um, those client perceptions and attitudes surrounding antibiotic use in their pets here in a few Colorado pet hospitals. Uh, so kind of Colorado centric, but, uh, we do love our pets out here in Colorado. Oh, yeah. um, but, uh, uh, ultimately what we found from, from, these surveys of, of pet owners is that they trust their veterinarian and they want their veterinarian to uh, recommend what's best for their pet ultimately. And on the same hand, they also want to be involved in their healthcare decisions for their pets. So really, really that opens the door, I think, for maybe some new techniques or tools to be developed that can foster that relationship between a, a pet parent and the veterinarian um, to foster that sense of, of trust. And if the veterinarian is, is not withholding the antibiotic because they're a bad veterinarian or because they're an evil person or because they want your cat to continue to have runny eyes, that's not the case, obviously. But having that open line of communication, trust, and involvement amongst pet owners, I think, is really key in improving antibiotic use uh, here in, in, in veterinary medicine. Okay, so Becky, here's the dilemma. And this is a, a more common scenario than we like to admit sometimes, Dan. But Becky is faced with this in a lot of different areas in the vet clinic. And it goes like this. Okay, I'm the vet, Becky, and it's a little cat with the snuffles. And I'm saying, you know what? I don't think it needs antibiotics because it's most likely a viral infection. So we're just going to send the cat home. Now, the pet owner is going, wait, I just spent 55 bucks for an exam. and You're not going to do anything about my cat? Becky, how do you handle that? I'm like, hey, Dr. Ward, the owner in room two has more questions about this visit. <laughs> That's why I'm not in practice anymore. It's your problem, friend. No, 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 no. Um, we want to educate him, right? So this is about education, but I, I, I challenge you with how many times do these little snuffle cats turn into a bacterial infection because they're snuffling. And so sometimes they think there is that like, well, we're worried about a secondary infection and, you know, should we be proactive here? Or are you literally going to look at the client and say, however, you may need to come back in two weeks to actually get those antibiotics when this goes a step further. And 
that's some bad social media, isn't it? And so we're put in a really bad position because we know what this could turn into. What, 30%? I don't know. You know, put a percentage on it that you you pull out of the air. It's not 100%. But that existing percentage is going to be risky for your reputation. Oh, and then let's add imposter syndrome on top of it. And it came back, the owner's pissed, and you should have just done antibiotics in the first place. So I feel like, hey. (laughs) So So we've got the expert. So Dan, give us some advice here. That is an all too common scenario. Um, I, uh, in my practice days when I was a full-time veterinarian, there was a, a good chunk of time there. I worked at an ER specialty hospital as a overnight and weekend uh, ER veterinarian. And we talk about that trust aspect between a client and a veterinarian and, and, the, and the pet. And that's you know certainly a relationship that's more easily fostered in day practice than it is in an emergency hospital. Sure. So that scenario plays out a lot, I think, in, in different in different clinic settings as well but but how do you how do you handle that um and that's a that's a really good question i think um you know ultimately the veterinarians are are the ones who who went to the four years of, of postgraduate education to know whether or not an antibiotic is is required um but we have to take into account that team that team aspect as well so that not only can we do what's best for the pet but we know that the owner understands that as well I think to that point exactly it it when you know when I go to my doctor he does give me choices he does say it could be this or it could be this and we can do this but and so I think there is a an opportunity there to educate your clients and say at this point I think it's viral and an antimicrobial is not necessary however this could turn into this This is why, since your cat is a a small kitten, I don't want to throw antimicrobials at it immediately because we have a whole life to live (laughs) and we want these (laughs) antimicrobials to last a very long time because right now these are the ones we have. So um, I think there's an aspect of really educating your client and putting some of the decision making in in their power. Absolutely. You bring bring up a great point too. Uh, you, You talk about the little kitten who has the snuffles. As a veterinary profession, when we prescribe that antimicrobial drug to that six-month-old kitten that just came from the shelter that has runny eyes and a sneezy nose with clear nasal discharge, we are altering their microbiota on their skin, <laughs> in their intestines, <laughs> their respiratory tract forever. We cannot yep. take that back. Yep. So that is really... Um, you know, I think some points that we can help educate our clients with by by maybe talking some about some of the pitfalls of, of these drugs too. Yeah. I, and, and as I said in that video all those years ago too, Dan, I was like, you need to have like a little roster, a bench to go to of some kind of treatment that does not involve an antibiotic. You know, So I mean, it's like whatever that might be, whether it's a dehumidifier, whether it's a, a warm towel, I don't care, but you better have something to give that client to do because that's also part of the process. The other thing that I've brought up for years, Dan, and I'd love to hear your, your opinion on it, is you know, I've also said, don't hold them hostage to a follow-up exam fee like you know so now when they've got those little kittens and puppies and whatnot it's like hey if it's not better in three or four days call the office and then you know we might prescribe something i mean i I think there's also a lot of other strategies that we have to employ kind of following the pediatric model most definitely and some of our colleagues are, are doing some really great work in 
in developing and promoting the use of alternatives, whether it be L-lysine for a cat, right, right. whether it be probiotics for a dog with diarrhea, whether it be that dehumidifier or, or going to the bathroom with a hot shower going on. And, and I completely agree with you that, you know, it, even if we are not 100% convinced it's not bacterial or that it won't turn bacterial and, and therefore necessitate antimicrobial drugs, you're right. Why hold an owner hostage? for for a second exam fee especially with the rise of telemedicine um, right exactly we can definitely use that uh, to our advantage you know makes it more efficient for the veterinary team uh, the owner knows that they don't have to pay another 35 bucks to come in and see you just to get an antibiotic potentially um you know working and being flexible and amenable to the concerns of a, a pet parent is paramount, I think, when we talk about uh, involving them in the decision-making process and then ultimately using those antimicrobial drugs more appropriately. Yeah. You know, I used to always tell my, in my lectures, Dan, I would say things like, you know, here's the issue, it's cost and convenience. And if you create a hurdle in either of those categories, that's too high, you're going to disappoint the client. So in these cases, what happens is they've taken off work. They, they've made vast arrangements to their schedule to get their little kitty to the vet. And they are like, fix it now. Like, I don't have time to come back next week for you. So we've got to figure out ways to, like you said, whether it's telemedicine, whether it's, you know, prescribing, you know, something, you know, on, over the phone. I don't know what your situation might be because each case is individual, of course, and we can't make broad sort of assumptions. But having said that, that's really, it's a cost and convenience play and we can do a better job. I want to just throw in there that I have, you know, I love telemedicine because I yeah. human interactions, what that can be prevented. So I have been on, on telemedicine several times and they will not prescribe antimicrobials. You know, like if you have a sore throat and you, you know, they think it's strep, like they're like, nah, you got to go be seen in person. So even on the human end of telemedicine, they're pretty strict with that. And I, I really respected that, at least from the platforms that I used. But again, I, I guess let's be solution oriented here then. Like I'm putting the pressure on you or I guess Dr. Dan, but like... <laughs> What do we do? I mean, how much damage are we doing with precautionary measures? Um, if we feel backed up against a corner, is there a line of antimicrobials we can use that are, are more benign than others? Definitely. That's that's a really great point, too. I love the solution-orientedness of that question. Um, and, you know, I, I think that there certainly are antimicrobial drugs that are um, better to use than, than others. At, for example, um, the World Health Organization publishes a list of critically important antimicrobial drugs right. and uh, lists things like fluoroclinolones, like like Batril, or um, third generation cephalosporins, like right. convenient. Uh, and they limit, they want us to limit those uses of those drugs. So yes, there are drugs that maybe we can be using more, especially if there's that degree of uncertainty there uh, um, as well. And I think really, too, that solution-oriented question, um, one thing that, that maybe we could do a better job of as a profession, and, and maybe the human profession as well, is really recognizing that this is not just a objective medical decision, that there is a component of, of behavior and social aspects to this issue that make it 
outworldly complex. So not even saying that we need to understand the problem in full, but understanding that it's complex and that there's a lot of uncertainty there is something that I think we need to shift our, our thinking to a little bit. Wow. Well, Dan, you are certainly doing your part to shift our profession's thinking around antimicrobial resistance and antibiotic stewardship. And I can't thank you enough, not only for joining us today to talk about this important work, but for doing the important work to begin with. So thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Yeah, you're, you're very welcome. And, and um, I think uh, yeah, kudos to our profession um, in doing these survey projects. Uh, we've had a lot of interest from from veterinarians across the country. So genuinely, there is a concern there um, amongst veterinarians and veterinary professionals. And Dan, can we include a link today to where people, if they're interested, they can still participate in some of this this work? Absolutely. So our, our current project right now um, really was born out of the fact that we realized that, again, this is a multi-stakeholder issue. And we've surveyed the veterinarians, we've surveyed the pet owners, but we really, really need to include our other veterinary professionals to assess their attitudes and perceptions of antimicrobial use in companion animal medicine. So currently we have a survey open for uh, veterinary technicians, assistants, front desk staff, groomers, kennel technicians, anyone who works in a veterinary hospital. We want to know what they think ultimately about antibiotic use in in dogs and cats, because I think until we address that knowledge gap, we're not going to have a very good handle on on the issue, um, given what we have right now. Um, If you do a search on PubMed or any other manuscript database, you will not find many publications that focus solely on veterinary support staff. No, not at so all. not only is this a really great way to bridge that knowledge gap of antibiotic use and companion animal practice, but it's also a really great opportunity to value the opinions, the expertise, the knowledge of our uh, veterinary professional friends who really, <laughs> really make practice go. Now, is there a website that we can visit or we will definitely include uh, listeners of you finder family the links in the show notes today but is there a website that people can visit we currently don't have a website for for the uh, the survey tool itself but uh yeah certainly um if you'd like to include a, a link in the show notes that would be that would be amazing or uh certainly to the listeners are, are free to email me um at any time for a, a link to that survey uh the email is pretty easy to remember it's just dan taylor dvm at gmail.com um but yeah we would really appreciate any support uh, in taking that this survey is not for veterinarians but um certainly veterinary listeners if you want to pass that on to your friends in the clinic that would be much appreciated Wow, love it. So Dan Taylor, D-A-N-T-A-Y-L-O-R-D-V-M at gmail.com. And again, we will include links to the survey for veterinary technicians and support staff in the show notes. Dan, thank you again for doing all the important work. Viewfinders, what do you think about antimicrobial resistance? Is it a problem in small animal medicine? Are we making much to do about nothing? Or how do you handle those clients who say, hey, you got to give me some drugs? We want to hear from you. Nope. You can find us on Facebook at Veterinary Viewfinder, on Instagram at Veterinary Viewfinder, and you can email us at veterinaryviewfinder at gmail.com. That's right. Well, we really want to hear from you. Hope you're staying safe and sound and sane out there. 
Be well, everyone. Thanks again to Dr. Dan Taylor. We will talk to you next week. Bye. Bye. See you later. Excellent. I love that discussion. Yeah, great. Yeah.